The History of Castlebar podcast is sponsored by mayobooks.ie. Hello and welcome to the History of Castlebar podcast. I'm Noel Campbell. And I'm John Healy. Each week we'll be discussing a selected chapter from our book, The History of Castlebar, which is available online from mayobooks.ie or in-store in the Castle Bookshop. This week we'll be discussing one of John's chapters, Healthcare in Castlebar. John, can I start off by asking you, it's always been a, a, a looming large in the town, was the infirmary, which was a, a large institution in the town. What do we know about the infirmary and, and the doctors who ran it? Well, no, the, the infirmary was built in 1765 on the site now occupied by Oris and Conde. It was built by way of a grant from the Irish Parliament. It was a three-storey hospital with 60 beds and living accommodation for the man who would eventually become county surgeon and for the staff. The first doctor was a Dr. Knott, and he served there throughout the famine times, right through from 1830 to 1871. He was married to an O'Malley, who was a niece of Major General George O'Malley, who now stands guard outside the Christchurch looking down Edison Street. He was succeeded by his son, who had the name Dr. Middleton O'Malley Knott, and he served from his father's resignation until almost 1907 when Dr. McBride, one of the town's legendary figures, took over as Mayo County Surgeon. McBride took over at a time when it was a very, well, the, the hospital itself or the infirmary itself was a very, quite a rundown place. There was no operating theatre. Um, the beds were, there were straw beds mostly. Uh, conditions were fairly fairly primitive. Um, the first thing McBride did was he decided he it needed an operating theatre. Up to that, operations were carried out in the bed of the patient. So you can imagine... That's gruesome. <laughs> it's gruesome, is right. And it entailed sometimes, uh, because there was only a staff of a matron, two nurses, a cook and a porter. That was the entire complement of staff. So if an operation or a tricky operation was being carried out in the bed, the patient's family might have to come in to hold down the, to restrain the patient. So it was that, it was that bad. So anyway, McBride decided the first thing he needed was a new theatre. There was no, no money available, no grant available for it. He started a fundraising campaign in which he set up an infirmary guild in which some of the leading ladies of the town agreed to act as fundraisers, the likes of Mrs. Brown and Brafey and Mrs. Larmony, of who we came across the Larmony family several times, the Ormsbys of Kelchama. Mm. They were wealthy people and they also were great supporters of his. So they raised £5,000, which was a large sum of money at the time. They were still short. And Dr. McBride encashed his own personal insurance policy to make up the shortfall, so that shows what a, how dedicated he was to the to the hospital yeah. and to the to the running of it. It, it, it always struck me why a man, educated, professional man, would have stayed around in those conditions. But obviously, he had a, a bigger calling to the town. He had a. And a this is just over a, a little over a hundred years ago. The conditions you're talking about. When and you I, think of that, yeah. that's right. 1907. He was a brother, of course, of Major John McBride, as you know, of uh, the 1916 yeah. Patriot. McBride himself would have been, would have strong Republican sympathies, of course. And during the War of Independence, he would often leave the hospital at night and go out to some remote location where an IRA man might be injured or have got shot at or was wounded and he'd tend to his, to his wounds, you know. 
he was a kind of a strict he adopted a strict regime in the hospital he um he'd rise at half past five in the morning and serve breakfast to his wife Lelia and then he'd go around and he'd raise the rouse the staff work would start at eight o'clock and it would run on until whatever time at night you know on one occasion well few occasions he brought in some of the freedom fighters in for treatment in the hospital itself and of course that put him under suspicion for the military mm. straight away they raided the hospital on one occasion and demanded that he hand over one of the patients who was a known IRA man uh, McBride refused and they told him that he could be shot at dawn if he didn't and his reply was in that case I'd prefer you to leave it until after half five which is the time that Mrs. McBride <laughs> likes to have a breakfast. <laughs> so that kind of put an end to that put an end to that to that threat. He worked there until 1938, as, until the opening of the new county hospital. In fact, he worked until 1940. But in 1938, the new county hospital was opened up in uh, on the Westport Road on the site of the old jail. The nurses weren't qualified. Now there were competent people, but there. Were, he had no qualified nurses on the staff, neither the matron or the two nurses. And this is in the 30s now, in the 1930s. When yeah, the no, sorry, this was in the 1900. Still in the infirmary. When he came there right. first, yeah. yeah. So he eventually replaced them. As they retired, he replaced them with qualified qualified nurses. And there was just a porter and himself. But of course, there were no there were no trolleys or pulleys or lifts or anything like that. So when an operation would be finished in the theatre, Dr. McBride would have to carry the patient on his back up maybe two flights of stairs, depending on what ward he was in. And actually, it was often said that his health gave out. You know, he died a fairly young man, but it was said that because of the hard work that he had done, you know, that this was this was part of it. Just to go back for a moment to Dr. Knott. Dr. Knott was married to Miss O'Malley, mm. and he built, or his son actually built that house just above the old library, it's a sort of a, a chalet-type beautiful house on the right-hand side as you go on the old road to Westport. And Dr. Dr. Knott lived there in his retirement. The Infirmary Guild was quite active. They raised a lot of money for, for, the, 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 for the hospital. It was a fee-paying hospital. There was no such thing as free medicine. Now, if you were, if you couldn't afford to pay, you didn't pay, but Theoretically, it was supposed to be funded with three sources of funding. The grand jury gave it an annual grant. Patients' fees should have made up a fairly substantial amount. And then the um, the guild would raise whatever they could in between. But it was always running on a very tight, no different than today, it was always running on a very tight, tight schedule. He was, I suppose, a legend in his own, in his own right, you know. And uh, he was a man who's... Pretty much forgotten. You know, he went on to serve as chairman of the Urban Council after that, as, as you know, and took an active part in a lot of the things in town. Kind of ran foul of the old IRA in the end because he went with Cumberland Gale in the post-treaty mm. uh, situation. But yeah, that was it. His big moment came in 1938 when he presided over the banquet that opened the new hospital up in on the Westport Road, new 160-bed hospital, and that was really, I suppose, the pinnacle of his of his achievements, you know. And at that stage, when they when in 1938, when the new hospital opens, <clears throat> it's quite unfortunate he's come to the end of his career. He doesn't get to enjoy he for that long. He doesn't get to enjoy the no. the conditions in in the new hospital. In the new hospital, no, uh, he, he two years. 
Do we know how long the infirmary building stood for then? To my memory, it was not before I was a kid, in mm. other words. Uh, and it was used as a county council machinery yard until eventually, well, it was used for some years by the Red Cross during the emergency. Then it was demolished and it became the county council yard mm. until Orison Conde was built there eventually, you know. And so the new and improved conditions in the new hospital, I mean, 1938 yeah. were a new state of, we want to show off. Oh, yeah. Was it state of the art or was yeah. it more the same? Uh, no, it wasn't. No, no. The new county hospital was, it had everything, you know. It, it really was. The government poured a lot of money into that, into the new hospital. And as you, as you said there, McBride only had two years until he retired. He went to Dublin, died within a few years in Dublin and is buried back in his native Westport in Ahwal. He was succeeded by a man called Paddy Bresnahan. Paddy became the Mayo County Surgeon. He was a Limerick man, uh, came to town and spent all his working life in town as well. He was a tremendous athlete. He was a high jump champion for British and Irish universities. He had studied in Germany and had written medical papers in German, which are still archived in Germany and can be found, believe it or not, which is a huge achievement for a, for a young man to be able to, to do that. He arrived in Castlebar and he was told that his accommodation was in the old, still in the old infirmary where McBride had lived. Petty Bresnan took a look at it, decided it was so decrepit <laughs> that it was uninhabitable, came back to the Board of Health and said, look, unless you get give me accommodation, I'm not going to take up the appointment. So building materials were in short supply. They couldn't build a house for him, even though that was that would have been their intention. Of course, during the emergency time. During the emergency, yeah. he just couldn't lay hands. So they agreed that if he went into digs in town, they'd pay for his digs, and then when building materials came came on stream, he would um, they'd build a house for him, which they did. He he stayed in the Irish house in Edison Street, and they built a house. It's still there. I think it's still there. It's still being used as a maybe doctor's residence or something. I'm not quite sure, but it's still there. Uh, and he lived there and up on the grounds of the hospital. The grounds of the hospital. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But the hospital was very modern. Now there was a, a nurse's residence there. You know where the staff lived on site. You know, a completely separate building from the hospital proper, and it had you know all the facilities. You know, X-rays and mm. theatres and everything else that went with it. Are we talking about a large staff level? I mean, it, poor Doctor McBride had very little to work with himself and three others. <laughs> he had six. The town didn't change uh, overnight. <laughs> you know, it didn't. Uh, so. Well, of course, the the the, the bed complement had doubled from right. sixty to. 120 in the new hospital. So there would have been, um, employment would have, you know, there was wards, maids and porters and nurses now where there was nothing before. The porter, the porter, the porter and the cook did everything bar, bar the nursing in the old place. But in the new place, they had a fairly good staffing levels. They were still charging fees, of course, you know, in the hospital. There was no, you, you had to pay for your Keep six shillings a day, I think, was the cost in a public ward and maybe a pound in a private ward. Uh, they found it hard to collect the money. Up until the 1960s, the county council decided that they'd actually sue the non-paying patients for whatever money was was due. So, much to their shame, it appeared in the newspapers, you know, that... Your name was nearly been read at Mass. <laughs> nearly been read, same as been read at Mass. You've a great, you've a great uh, story in the book about one of the porters in particular. Is it Tom McGowan? 
Oh, Tamagown was in the old uh, infirmary with Dr. Knott. And he, he had quite a sad... Uh, a very sad story, yeah. He, he, he was from Swinford and he had gone to England as a young man to work when he was 17 or 18, I suppose. He was a very sober man and very diligent young man, by all accounts. Outside his digs one night, a row erupted and a man was killed in the row. People swore that it was Tom McGowan was the assailant. And in fact, Tom McGowan was not near the place, as it turned out. But anyway, the witnesses went in and swore that Tom McGowan had killed the, the other man. He was jailed at the Lincoln Assizes for manslaughter. Some years later, the true assailant on his deathbed confessed. Uh, the story was brought back to the Home Secretary and Tom McGowan was released, uh, given a, di- a discharge and came home and started work in the, in the hospital, or in the infirmary, I should say, rather than hospital in the county infirmary. He was very well liked and he worked so closely with Dr. Knott that he became quite proficient in medical, in medical science himself. So the people of the town, instead of going to the hospital to see Dr. Knott, would consult Tom McGowan and as far as they were concerned his word was so it was as good his as word anything. was as good as the doctor's word you know they were quite happy an interesting aspect about the the new hospital was when the in 1948 they came to the appointment of a matron and the board of health which was a subcommittee of the county council decided that they wanted a religious sister in charge and that the deputy matron would be a lay person. And they pressed the case very hard. They wanted the religious to be run in the hospital. Uh, the Minister for Health wouldn't agree. He said that to do that would block the career path for young nurses. He wouldn't be agreeable to it. So they did appoint the matron. It was Kathleen Duffy or Kay Duffy as she was more widely known. Kay was from Lindenhall Street, a neighbour of my own. She was an aunt of the Cody family who are still in Lindenhall Street. And she served from 1948 until 1976 and ran ran a good show. It's still talked about to this day that she ran a very tight ship. She'd, the, she'd even uh, gone as far as to ban some footwear in the hospital. <laughs> she, what, what was she that? She did. Stiletto heels had just come in at the time and the floor covering in the hospital was a particularly soft material. So the stiletto heels were damaging the, the carpet. Well, it wasn't a carpet. It was a sort of a, it was a floor covering of some sort anyway. And she made a rule that no stilettos. So if you came into the hospital with stiletto heels, you had to take them off at the door and go up to the ward and visit whoever you were visiting. If, and, and that was it. So that made a lot of headlines. That made national headlines at the time. You can I imagine know. at the time, yeah, half your day would be spent chasing yeah. Young ladies coming in <laughs> on stilettos. stilettos. <laughs> they were very fashionable, apparently, at the time. The, the stilettos, you know. So, and Kate Duffy went on to get uh, some great commendations. Uh, she did indeed. She won Council of Europe awards. She was a fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons. She was a member of on board Alternish for years. Uh, I think she was president of board Alternish on one occasion. So she was highly regarded as a, nationally as a. An outstanding nurse and, and matron. Have we any, um, I mean, there's plenty, plenty of characters and everybody knows plenty of staff. It was such a huge employer in the town, I suppose, the hospital uh, over the years. Have we any, any idea of at its peak what it would have been employing, do we know, in the town? Could I suppose we, there would have been a few hundred people working between, you know, the grounds and the stokers and, you know, all of the ancillary staff as well. There would have been that many. But it, I suppose 
an interesting point is, Noel, that at that time, and this goes for the St. Mary's Hospital as well, which was a town within itself, you could say, you know, it, it was it was a community of its own. But between there, the Sacred Heart Hospital, the county hospital, all of the staff, you see, lived in the town. There was no commuting. There were no cars, indeed. If you came to work in Castlebar, you went into digs in Castlebar, and that was it. So there was a terrific vibrancy with the GA and the drama and musicals and operas because these people were actually living in the town and there were the time on their hands that, you know, they were able to get involved in voluntary activities. And of course, that all changed when when people got cars, they started driving to work and that was it. There was no more. Even in St. Mary's Hospital, the single, the unmarried members had to live on the premises. Married people could live outside, but if you were single, you lived in the nurse's residence in St. Mary's. Remarkable. It's some control, time. isn't it? It was. I, I presume was, entry yeah. and exit was well looked at as well, I'd say. From it was, yeah. The mental hospital particularly was very tightly controlled. Yeah. You know, it was um, up until the 1960s, there was a gatehouse. You had to sign in and out. And that gatehouse was run by the Loftus family, Jack Loftus's great-grandfather would have been the first, yeah, he was the first gatekeeper there. Mm. And then it went on to his family, and they lived there as well, and they, they were the gatekeepers. There was a big high wall around it, of course, and it was only in the 60s that the hall, the wall was taken down because the then RMS, Dr. Kelly, said it resembled a prison too much and that he didn't like the idea. It was time to throw open the throw yeah. the place open to the public and, you know, let it be seen to be yeah, of course, part, of the, uh, part of the community. Of course, the hospital wouldn't be on its own there. This was the kind of way it was done. Institutions were... That's the way Walled they were. away from you and, and were, yeah. we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll let you in when they see. But you paint a picture there, quite a vibrant town when we think of the hospitals, St. Mary's, uh, Sacred Heart Hospital, Central, County yeah. Home, dispensaries, you know, to be... That's to, right. to, County Council. Qu- yeah, yeah, quite yeah, fortunate no. to have those large employers. It was. And, and large was. contracts coming out of them as well. But all, as you said, all that money staying in town, people were all lodging the on the main streets, on Castle Street and lodgings. and Every second house was a... A boarding house or yeah. a lodging house for post office lads, P and T, all of those. They mm. all stayed in the stayed in the town. Well, I missed it. But as I said, St Mary's was, you know, I mean, St Mary's was a some institution. You know, it had its own. It was self sustained. You know, its own bakery, its own tailors, its own shoemakers, its own butchers. Had it a farm? It's oh yes, oh, it. oh yes, yeah. its own farm. Yeah, milk, vegetables. Beef, meat, um, they had their own drama group, their own football teams, it had its own ball alley, its own running track. You know, it was it was a town within a town in many ways. It's amazing. You know. If we try to achieve that today, what, what would happen? <laughs> but it's very it, tightly controlled, as, uh, as you said. You a know, town within was, a town, yeah. Some some managerial skills, I suppose it's... Uh, well, it was, a, yeah, and it was a big call for the RMS, who was, mm. you know, the RMS was uh, Dr. Kelly for most of that time when it was still an institution. And he was subject to all sorts of intrusive examination from the Board of Health. He'd have to report to the Board of Health every month and explain what quantity of vegetables were used, how much electricity was used, what people were demoted, what people didn't turn up for work, what fellas he had to he had to dismiss. Everything was and everything was reported in the in the papers as well. I mean that wouldn't happen nowadays. So if Noel Campbell was dismissed for non attendance, that would appear in the papers and be <laughs> public black mark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was it was amazing. John, thanks very much for a very interesting look back at it. A uh, couple of centuries, really, of of healthcare in Castlebar. Yeah, yeah, there was a lot, a lot went on. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Noel. Before we go to our usual ad break, we'll take a look back 
at some ad from the past. John, you've something interesting there from 1963. Yeah, Noel, this one is, as you say, 1963. It's at the beginning of the television era. Our radio television had just started. Uh, it was one channel. Most houses didn't have television yet at that stage, or if they had, they might have one set. Uh, but the thing is that most people rented their sets because they were afraid that the set would break down. So rather than buy a television, you rented your set. Rental was a big thing. And this ad is refers to that. So it's from Kelly TVs, which was a big rental business in town, announcing the Kilkelly TV rental purchase plan with all-in free service. Free valves, free tubes, free service, no repair bills. BBC and TE available as necessary. Choose from Murphy, Bush, Phillips Pipe, Pilot, etc. On-the-spot service, no waiting, round the clock. Loan set while you are on is away. This plan is calculated to provide you with a high-quality 19-inch TV set, aerial and service. All your own for less than nine shillings and sixpence per week. Kilkelly's The Television Centre, Main Street, Castlebar. 30 years in radio, first and best in television. The Connacht Telegraph, serving the community since 1828 and now reaching 1.5 million people per month on our online and print platforms. We'd always like to hear from listeners of the podcast. Uh, we welcome any comments or questions you might have. If you do have any, please send it to historyofcastlebar at gmail.com. And a question has come in from Emer John, and it's a query that constantly comes up, and I'm sure you're getting it, is whether the town river was ever rerouted in the past. Now, I've seen this on Facebook pages to do with history of Castlebar. Um, my own belief is sections of it were as part of drainage schemes, but the rerouting, I think, that some people have believe may have happened. I don't think, and I certainly have no proof, that it ever did happen. There's talk yeah. that the river once went up Cavendish Lane, across Ellison Street, down to the back of the Mall, across Castle Street, if you can imagine that, and right. on to join the river at the Barrack Wall. Now, there is that theory, I've heard that. There's yeah. a theory. Yeah. I, I think yeah. what's happened here is that through the years there's been a bit of confusion maybe, and this happens, that's... That, that we know from different maps, uh, official British maps as well, that a, a Shrohan, a stream, did run kind of past Christchurch down to the back wall of the Mall and on to join cross that's what's right. now the Castle Street Car Park and on into the river. And that's marked on maps. We know that was there. So it was quite a, a large stream, I would imagine, if it was it marked. It must have been, yeah. And that's along by the Barrack Wall, you might say, is it? It, it joined in at the Barrack Wall, exactly. Yes. It joined yes. in It joined in where that where the new bridge is, say. The where the new bridge is. But it ran along it. from? It ran, it ran along the back, the back of the Mall. So if you're at the back of the Mall, okay. at the back boxing club, looking down that large drop All right. onto Ellison Street, okay. it ran along that. And down straight across. Christ, and straight across. So it's actually following, it's, it's following a contour it should, yeah. as opposed to the up Cavendish Street, yeah. Up Ellison Street, you're rising up. Uh, There's some river that's going to go uphill. Yeah, it's hard to imagine. It's, it's the, hard to imagine. Now, I've the seen uh, the OSI, the Ordnance Survey maps online, which you can superimpose on each other from the modern map to back in the 1840s and whatnot. There was some change in river, say, around uh, the Lake Lawn, as they call it, around Marsh House, where a bit mm -hmm. of land was reclaimed. Quite a, quite a bit of land. But that, uh, to my knowledge, through investigations, 
there was a quite a dr- big drainage scheme in the 1850s where they reclaimed a lot of land back from the lake. You can superimpose over the oh, lake. Okay, so yeah. the lake was quite a lot larger than it is, but right. we reclaimed it all. Boyd's Island, all those areas were drained right. and those sections of land were exposed. Right. And that was undertaken as well down around a lake lawn. So actually the river once ran, uh, if you were walking into Tesco uh, down there now, if you walked into that in the mid 1800s, you'd be splashing right through the river. Right through the river. Yeah. Yes. So a small section was changed, but in terms of the course of the, the large engineering project that some people... Pretty much. Uh, no, I don't see it and I certainly haven't seen any evidence for it. Yeah. I did hear a tale where a, a bishop at one stage uh, was jealous of his neighbouring diocese and in order to redraw the map, the map must have ended, uh, his, his boundary was the river and in order to grab an extra bit of land... He changed. He changes, but that sounds like a, a mega engineering feat when he could just have bribed a man in Rome to redraw a map. So no, I think your story about the the Shrohan, as it were, which ran through Castlestreet Car Park, I think that's nearer the mark, and maybe that's why people are confused. I think so, and yeah. I think over the years it's been it's been known that there was a water that there was system a water going through area. it, and yeah. it's. Yeah. I think that's that, that's the story. Thanks to our listeners for joining us again this week and we hope you enjoyed our show. Just to remind you that our book The History of Castle Bar can be bought online at mayobooks.ie or in store in the Castle Bookshop. Do join us again next week where we'll be discussing another chapter from the book. The History of Castle Bar podcast is sponsored by mayobooks.ie The series is produced by me, Brendan Gilmartin. If you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend and leave a review.